We're in Luke chapter 2 as we continue our Christmas series, Ugly Christmas Sweater Party. And as we did the last couple of weeks, we will begin again today by reading from a book called Dad is Fat by comedian Jim Gaffigan. And talking about the holidays and family gatherings and seeing relatives, this is what Jim Gaffigan says. Holidays inevitably mean family gatherings. For parents of young children, these become mandatory. No matter how you feel about your extended family or family gatherings, you will be attending. This is because now the ultimate reason for attending family gatherings is for your children to have the time of their lives with their cousins. Little kids love their cousins. I'm not being cute or exaggerating here. Cousins are like celebrities for little kids. If little kids had a People magazine, cousins would be on the cover. The children of your siblings are God's trick to keep you coming to family gatherings. My extended family makes me crazy, but the kids love it. I don't want you to think that I don't love my extended family, Jim Gaffigan says. I do. I just don't want to be around them. Some of this is because I'm a loner. And some of this is because at family gatherings, you are forced to face the short genetic distance between you and a clinically insane person. Of course, there's a built-in forgetter with family. You only remember when you get there. Oh, that's right. Everyone's crazy. No wonder I live 3,000 miles away. Mankind has made amazing advancements over the centuries, but we can't remember that our family is crazy. I bet cavemen remembered. Me know every day yellow ball go down from sky and my extended family is bonkers. That is why the holidays are spaced out like they are. The day after the 4th of July, you always tell yourself, I'm never dealing with those weirdos again. The day before Thanksgiving, it's going to be great to see everyone again. Cousins, family gatherings, weirdos. That's how it was at the time of Jesus' birth. Joseph and Mary would crash at one of their cousins' house for Christmas. But when they got there, it wouldn't be as exciting of a stay as it was when they were little and visited their cousin's house. In fact... From the perspective of Joseph and Mary, the birth of their baby boy would not be ideal. They would be reminded that their family was a little crazy. It would, in fact, be an ugly Christmas sweater party. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What we'll see today in Luke's gospel is this. First, it's the bad news. Everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. And the good news, everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. That's what Christmas is all about. The birth of Jesus is proof that everything that the Bible says about sin is true of you. But the birth of Jesus is also proof that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The birth of Jesus is God exclaiming to us, I love you. You, the birth of Jesus, in the words of Martin Luther, 
is this. The incarnation is proof that God is not against us. But the bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. In fact, I believe that our sinfulness actually keeps us from truly grasping just how sinful we are, just how bad we are. Our sinfulness actually keeps us from grasping how bad we really are. But the good news of the gospel is that God is far better He's more loving than we could ever hope or even imagine. We can't even begin to understand, to fully understand just how loving and how gracious and how merciful God is. He's better than we could hope. He's better than we can even imagine. If we put our collective minds together, we could not come up with a God this loving, this gracious, this merciful to sinners like us. His goodness far exceeds any thoughts that we could conjure up. And that's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts. As Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out, shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we would know how much God loves us. Because we just, there's something inside of us that just doesn't want to believe it. Does God really love me? I know the Bible says it, but is it true? And that's one of the reasons why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, so he would pour God's love abroad in our hearts, because we just can't believe it. We just don't want to believe it. We want to believe it, but we're like, there's got to be a catch. And the birth of Jesus Christ in a dirty room filled with dirty animals backs all of that up. Look at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and Hear the words of the gracious God who loves us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I'm going to assume that you know what preceded this in Luke chapter 1, but a quick recap. Mary was a godly teenage girl. She had pimples. She worried about her hair. She kept a diary. She had an iPhone. She had an Instagram account. She's just like every other teenage girl. She was a godly girl, and she was betrothed to this man named Joseph. She was engaged, to put it in our language, but betrothal was not just an engagement. It was something very serious, a serious engagement that you just wouldn't call off the way people call off engagements nowadays. This was a very serious commitment, and Mary was a virgin. And the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that the Holy Spirit would cause her to become pregnant, even though she was a virgin. 
And that the child that would be born to her would be the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the seed, the descendant that was promised in Genesis chapter 3.15 that we've looked at over the last few weeks. That he was the descendant of the woman, Eve. And that he would come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil. So now in Luke chapter 2, we fast forward to the end of Mary's pregnancy. And she's at that stage where she is completely miserable. She's ready to pop. Her due date is upon her, and Mary can't get comfortable at night when she sleeps. Mary misses the days when she could roll over at night onto her stomach and sleep. And Mary's innards are all pushed and squished up inside of her, and her baby boy is kicking and squirming like crazy. So Mary is ready to have this baby. And while the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, while Jesus Christ is kicking and squirming inside of this young, pimple-faced teenage girl named Mary, Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, issues a decree throughout the land that everyone must return to their hometown to register. This is what you call big government. Caesar wanted to know, how many people do I have in my empire? So that his head could get a little bit inflated. Look at such a a great emperor I am. And then he would come up with this idea of let's tax them. You see, it's nothing new. The government wanted to know everything about you, and they wanted to tax you. And Joseph and Mary are godly people who submit to the authority of the land. And they leave Podunk Nazareth to go to the city of David to Bethlehem. And so they travel 65 miles or so from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, it's important to remember something as you envision Joseph and Mary traveling 65 miles to Bethlehem. Remember this, Mary is pregnant. She is ready to pop. And she has to travel away from her doctor and away from her doula. And now she has to make this long journey. Now, traditionally, Mary has been portrayed as riding on a donkey from her journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but the Bible never says that. And here's why I think she wasn't on a donkey. I don't think any man could convince his ready-to-pop wife to get on a donkey. Can you imagine ladies being nine months pregnant and riding on a donkey? It's probably the last thing you want to do. So perhaps Mary was in a cart pulled by a donkey. I think she probably walked because people were used to walking long miles in those days. I think they walked. They made the journey on foot. But all that I can say for sure is at this point in her life, she was miserable. Amen, ladies? But here's what we can't miss and what Luke wants us to understand. Joseph was of the lineage of David, King David. He has royal roots. Joseph is a part of the line of descendants that go back to the baby boy in 2 Kings 11 that we looked at last week when King or Queen Athaliah went on her killing spree wanting to wipe out the entire royal family. Joseph is related to that little boy. Joseph can trace his roots through that little boy, through the kings, through Solomon, through David, through Abraham, all the way back to Eve. So please don't overlook this very important note that Luke gives us about Joseph in verse 4. He says he was of the house and lineage of David. And Joseph was returning to the royal city of David, Bethlehem. It's another significant part of the story. Now, 
Why is this significant? Why should the fact that Joseph was returning to Bethlehem, why should that stand out to us? Here's why. Because in the Old Testament, the Messiah was prophesied. It was prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of David, and the prophet Micah said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. So what we see here. If we read between the lines, as Luke is telling us that God is keeping his promises, that he is a covenant-keeping God, that he keeps all of his promises. But then we also have Caesar, the most powerful ruler of the land, and he has issued this decree for all people to register in their hometown. And Joseph and very pregnant Mary obey, and they make the trip back to Bethlehem, making lots of pit stops along the way so Mary can use the restroom. Meanwhile, Jesus Christ, the real ruler, the king of kings, the God of the universe, is inside the womb of a pimple-faced teenage girl while the ruler of the land, Caesar Augustus, sends out his decree. Caesar thinks he's in control. Caesar thinks that He's calling all the shots and directing the course of history. But what he doesn't know is that the real ruler is en route to Bethlehem and he's all squished up inside Mary's belly. And it's almost time for him to come out. Let me just add this thought here. God uses political leaders as his lackeys to forward his plans and purposes. The leaders of our world right now are servants of the Most High God. Caesar thought he was ruling the world, but he was only in the service of the living God who happened to be surrounded by amniotic fluid in Mary's womb at the moment. You might need to remember that as the political climate in our country begins to shift and move over the next year. Political leaders are God's lackeys that he uses to further his kingdom in this world. And at the time of the birth of Jesus, God used Caesar to make a decree that people should be registered in their hometown so that Joseph would return to his hometown so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem just like the prophet Micah said. Caesar thought he was in control But it was God who was directing everything. That ought to comfort your heart this holiday season and especially next year as the political climate in this country heats up. Jesus is calling all the shots in America and the world. You might want to rub that into your pores today. So sometime as Joseph is filling out the paperwork for Caesar or as he's standing in line at the registration station, which I assume was just like the lines at the DMV, at some point Mary starts having contractions and she gets that one kick from Jesus and she knows the time is near. And how exciting for Mary and Joseph. Their first baby is finally here is that moment, but we don't get any details. We don't know if Joseph started panicking which is what I've done with all of my six kids. We don't know if Joseph had the hospital bag packed and ready to go. All that Luke tells us in verse 6 is that while they were in Bethlehem, he says the time came for her to give birth. And then he tells us very simply in verse 7 that she gave birth. Look at verse 7. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. All that Luke tells us is that Mary gave birth to baby Jesus. Again, we don't get any of the details. Luke doesn't tell us if her water broke while they were standing in line at the registration station. He doesn't tell us if Joseph passed out. He doesn't tell us how much Jesus weighed or how long he was. He doesn't even tell us if Joseph got to cut the umbilical cord. We don't get any of those details. Luke just keeps it short and sweet. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. There are very two important details in verse 7 about the baby that we cannot miss. Verse 7 highlights the humanity of Jesus. And it highlights the humility of Jesus. We see the humanity of Jesus Jesus was a human being just like you and me, just like every other baby born into this world except he was without sin. He was 100% God, 100% man with those two natures united together in one person right here in this little baby that was all covered in afterbirth. Luke is telling us that Jesus was fully human. How so? Why do I say that Luke is highlighting the humanity of Jesus here? Here's why. Because Luke says that Mary had to wrap him in swaddling cloths. This means she wrapped baby Jesus up tight because, one, babies like to be wrapped up tight. It provides them comfort. And Mary didn't want little baby Jesus scratching his little face with his little bitty fingernails. So she wraps him up tight. But, two... She wrapped him up tight because Jesus was most likely cold. That's why Mary wrapped him up in a a blanket. Because this baby needed to be kept warm because he was a human being. I wish someone would have told the songwriters of the song, Do You Hear What I Hear? Maybe you've heard this before, but comedian Tim Hawkins said this about these song lyrics from Do You Hear What I Hear? He says this, a child, a child shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. How about a blanket? How about some soup? The child's shivering in the cold. Ah, throw some gold on him. He'll be fine. He's got pneumonia, but he's loaded. We shouldn't be surprised that these lyrics are not theologically sound because evidently this song was written as a plea to end the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was not written as a worship song. Well, here's my point. Luke is showing us Jesus' humanity here. Jesus needed to be bundled up because he was a human being just like you and me, except that he was without sin. Luke will show us Jesus' divinity in verse 11, that he is God But here, Luke is emphasizing the fact that Jesus was a human and that he was just like every single baby that is born into this world, the only exception being that Jesus was without sin. But verse 7 also highlights the humility of Jesus. Luke also stresses Jesus' humility when he says that Mary laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Think about this. We have the God of the universe the eternal Son of God, who left the glories of heaven coming to earth, and he has to sleep in a feeding trough surrounded by animals. What humility. 
In fact, three times in this chapter, Luke will tell us that they put the baby boy in a manger. In verse 7, verse 12, and verse 16, Luke says they put the baby in a manger. He's trying to get a point across to us of the humility of this baby boy. The humility that surrounded his birth, even though he was the glorious, eternal son of God. Now, you have to understand here that the manger was probably a feeding trough that animals used. This was no fancy crib from Target. Mary and Joseph did not have those cool walkie-talkie baby monitors. They had no CD of Kenny G playing sweet little lullabies to put baby Jesus to sleep. All they had was this dirty feeding trough in which they would lay their newborn son. And so Jesus takes his very first nap in a nasty feeding trough that was used by donkeys and horses. And he's surrounded by the noises and the smells of animals that he created. What humility. Now, why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, humble himself, take on human flesh, human blood, human bone, and be born in a room surrounded by noisy, filthy, dirty animals? Here's why. And this is what Luke wants you to know today, what he wants you to figure out as you read between the lines. It's this, it's the bad news, that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you And the good news, that everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. The bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. And the good news is that God is far better and he's more loving than we could ever hope or imagine. And the birth of Jesus Christ backs all of that up. Now, I want you to put yourself in Mary's shoes There's no sanitized hospital. There's no glass crib on wheels that they keep the baby in for a few days right next to the mom's bed until he leaves the hospital. There's no nurses to wake you up when you finally start taking a good nap. Maybe that's a good thing. You ladies know what I'm talking about, don't you? You finally start going to sleep after you have this baby and the nurses keep waking. Time to wake up, time to eat. Just let me nap. So maybe it's a good thing there's no nurses to wake her up. There's a sheep... There's donkeys, run-of-the-mill farm animals, very close to your newborn baby. And it wasn't because Mary was a first-time teenage mom who didn't know any better. It was all part of God's sovereign plan to highlight the humility of his son, Jesus, as he stepped into this messy, dirty, stinky, sin-filled world. Do you see it there? God comes down to messy and dirty and despicable sinners like us. I told you last week, Jesus is comfortable in our mess. That's grace. And that's what we see here. Hope travels through a birth canal and comes out all covered in afterbirth. Jesus showed up messy for messy sinners like us. Jesus humbly takes on human flesh and gets to nap in the feeding trough of some dirty animals. Let me ask you, how many of you would lay your newborn baby in your dog's food bowl? Anybody? Jesus took on human flesh in a very filthy environment, a picture of the kind of people that he came to save. 
And so the surroundings are less than ideal. But let me explain why I think Jesus was born in such a messy place. And in the process, we'll straighten out our theology, which I think has been shaped more by Christmas tradition and Christmas songs than the Bible. What was the inn that Luke speaks of when he says there was no room for them in the inn? What was the inn that Mary and Joseph stayed in? Well, when Luke says in verse 7 that there was no place for them in the inn, we should not think of a Motel 6 or the Radisson Hotel because scholars affirm that Bethlehem wasn't big enough for a fancy hotel back then. Bethlehem didn't even have a Starbucks. It was just a podunk town no larger than a postage stamp. And keep in mind, too, that Jewish culture was very hospitable, so it is unlikely that Joseph and Mary were kicked out by some mean-spirited innkeeper. That's the tradition that we have all believed. We picture this old curmudgeon at the hotel check-in desk, and he harshly tells this new mom, Get out of here! I said I ain't got no rooms available. See the blinking sign outside? No vacancy. What part of no vacancy do you not understand? Now you kids get out of here. That's kind of how we've been led to believe that there's this cranky old innkeeper who runs them out. Won't even take in a mom and her baby. That's not what transpired. The Greek word that is used here for the word in is also used by Luke in Luke chapter 22 verse 11. And he uses the same word for the upper room where Jesus ate the last supper with his disciples. And so the inn that Luke speaks of would have been the equivalent to a guest bedroom, which most likely would have been upstairs. Here's a picture of a typical first century house. Joseph and Mary probably showed up to their relative's house, to a cousin's house. Remember, this was Joseph's hometown, but perhaps one of their other cousins got there first, and they got dibs on the guest room. I don't know. So Joseph and Mary more than likely slept in the living room downstairs that housed all of the animals. In the first century, animals would have been kept indoors during the cold night, so this is where Jesus got to take his first nap. Surrounded by loud, smelly animals who had the freedom to go to the bathroom wherever they wished. A dirty, stinky, messy birth room. It doesn't sound appealing. And no mother here would want that for her baby, especially her first baby. But it is a beautiful scene because it all stresses the humility and the condescension of Jesus in his coming down to fallen, sinful humanity. And we'll even see that in the following verses too. So look at Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so after the events of Jesus' birth unfold, our scene switches to the open fields somewhere in Israel. And to whom does the angel appear? To shepherds, dirty, smelly, stinky 
shepherds. You would have said it this way back then with a lot of condescension in in your voice. You'd be like, shepherds? Ew. The angels appeared to shepherds? Why? Scholars suggest that shepherds were at the very bottom of the social ladder. These guys were the down and out, the bottom dwellers, the simpletons, the uneducated. Certainly, they were never sought out by anyone to join their club. And the shepherds shepherds certainly did not make People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People of the Year. Shepherds were looked down upon. And here they represent lowly, sinful humanity. They represent humanity that is lowly. There's nothing terribly exciting about them. And they're dirty. Imagine how they smelled. This is when you wish you had a scratch and sniff Bible. You need to smell these guys to feel the weight of the passage. They hung out with sheep all day. They're filthy. They're covered in dirt, sheep wool, covered in excrement. Their job site was noisy. It smelled bad. And an angel from the presence of the living God shows up in this environment. And these shepherds were watching over their flocks when suddenly this angel appears and the glory of God surrounds them. What does one do when this happens? What do you do when an angel appears? You freak out. That's the biblical model. You freak out. You're scared. That's the appropriate response, and that's exactly what these shepherds do. They're filled with great fear, and they're trying to figure all of this out. But then the angel talks, and imagine what that's like. And he says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The Greek word there for good news is the word gospel. I bring you The gospel of great joy that will be for all people. And then the angel tells them about the birth of Jesus and where they can find him. The angel tells the shepherds to hightail it to Bethlehem and they will see the sign. A baby will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there appeared a multitude of angels praising God. And they declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now let me clear up another misconception here. Sometimes you hear this verse translated this way, peace on earth and goodwill to men or toward men. Unfortunately, we think this means that during Christmas time we are to share, buy presents, give presents, in general practice goodwill to everyone and then get the warm fuzzies for doing so. And that's not a bad thing to do. At Christmas time, but that's not what this verse means. As the ESV translation captures it, it means this On earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. It means God's good pleasure with mankind, God's good pleasure with men, sinful men and women. Peace with whom God is pleased. But who can get in God's good graces? How can dirty, messy, rebellious, sinful human beings ever be made right with an infinitely glorious and holy God? How is that possible? Because we're so messed up and he's so holy, right? How can we be reconciled to him to where he looks at us and says the same thing that he says to his son Jesus, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. How can God say that to you? With you I am well pleased. With you I am well pleased. How is that possible? It's only possible because of and through that baby taking a nap in that dirty manger. 
It's only through the life and death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived the life that we all should have lived in perfect obedience to God's law. A life of never sinning one time. Never. Not even once. And Jesus died the death that we all deserve. He took the curse of the law upon himself on the cross. He died in our place. He died for our rebellion. For our treason. And when we repent of our sin. When we say, God, have mercy on me. I've chosen a million things to worship and to love more than you. God, forgive me. I trust in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection. Then guess what? Then the good news of the gospel becomes true of us. The good news of great joy, and it's this. God is no longer mad at you. Listen, if you've repented of your sins... You've turned and you're clinging to Jesus. Here's the good news of Christmas. God is not mad at you anymore. And this can become a reality for anyone here. If you repent, if you fess up, if you admit your sinfulness, if you admit your rebellion against God, and then you trust in Jesus alone to save you, then and only then will God no longer be angry at your sin. So there are really only two options when it comes to Christmas time. One, God is angry at you forever because of your rebellion and sin. That's the bad news. That for eternity, God's anger and wrath for your sin will be poured out on you. That's the bad news. Or the good news that God pours all of his anger out on Jesus on the cross and he's no longer mad at you. That that one point in time, God pours all of his anger out on Jesus because of your sin. And then he's no longer mad at you. That's the good news. He gives you Jesus' righteousness. He gives you Jesus' goodness. And that's why the angels are singing glory to God in Luke chapter 2. Because God did something to remedy our messed up condition. At the cross, God's love met our badness. Jesus came to clean up the mess that we made. And the angels are singing about the glorious, gracious God who stepped into this sinful world to save sinners like you and me. The angels are giving glory to God because he is so merciful and so gracious to sinners like you and me. The angels are telling you that God is no longer mad at you if you turn to the baby in the manger. The angels are telling you what I've already told you several times in this sermon. It's the bad news that everything the Bible says about sin is true of you. And the good news, everything the Bible says about God's love is true for you. See, the bad news is that we are far worse than we could ever think. We really don't think we're that bad. And the good news is that God is far better and more loving and more gracious and more merciful than we could ever hope or ever imagine in the birth of Jesus Christ backs all of that up. The Bible makes it very clear, and you know this from personal experience, that we are all in this one big messed up family called humanity. We all inherited Adam's DNA, the first man. We inherited his sin nature, and we became murderers and thieves and liars and prostitutes and Pharisees and goody-two-shoes who think they're better than other people. And if you don't believe me, you can just watch the news. But this sin problem of ours doesn't just manifest itself in epic wars and terrorist 
in our own state who like to shoot innocent people and blow things up, this sinfulness, this badness of ours also manifests itself in pre-Christmas shopping trips, getting angry when you can't find a parking spot at the mall or you can't find that one toy you're looking for. Your badness might even rear its ugly head when you go to watch the new Star Wars movie and you get a lousy seat in the theater. All that we struggle with during the Christmas season, all of the ugliness and the messiness of our family is the fruit of the fall, the fruit of our rebellion. When we rebelled with Adam and Eve in the garden, it's the fruit of our sin. And get this, simply scolding each other to be less selfish, less grabby during the holidays, that does not make the slightest bit of difference. Trying to heap guilt and shame on one another will do nothing for us. Trying to enforce the law won't help us and it won't change us. And that's why we need the true Christmas to defeat all that is ugly about the Christmas that we have created. Jesus, God's promise, the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3, he came into our ugly, messy, sin-sick world to capture our hearts, to rescue us from the deathly clutches of sin, to rescue us from self, and to draw us back to what God created us for, to glorify and enjoy him forever. So if you find yourself turning into a Grinch this year, Maybe you're upset by all the greed and all the shopping and all the selfishness and maybe it's your family that's messed up that works you over or that weird uncle who always drinks too much and makes a scene or maybe it's the pain and the sorrow of missing a loved one. Whatever it is that brings pain or sadness or anger this year, let it nudge your heart to thank God for Christmas. Let the ugly Christmas sweater parties, also known as our family gatherings, let them remind you that Jesus did not come to give us a holiday. Jesus did not come to give us a few days off of work. He came to give us the true life that we long since lost in the garden. He came so that we could be free, liberated, so that we could rest in his finished work. The problem is that the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season is really just a picture of how we all are with God. It's just a picture of our relationship with God. We have transferred all of this hustle and bustle over into our relationship with God. We're all trying to do stuff. We're all trying to get stuff done so that God will like us, so that he'll be pleased with us, so I can make him happy. We're all trying to do stuff, get stuff done instead of resting in what Jesus has already done for us. That means then that Christmas is not about what must we do, but who can we trust. It's not about checking things off the list. It's about resting in Jesus. It's not about what must we do, but who can we trust. And the answer is Jesus. You do understand That if our relationship with God, if Christianity was all about do this, don't do that, then the world would not hate us. You understand that, don't you? If our relationship with God, if Christianity was all about the rules, about do this, don't do that, then the world would not hate us. 
The world does not hate a Jesus that gives them a list to do. Why is that? Because the world is used to doing things, used to earning things, used to checking off the list. What offends the world is when you tell them that that there is nothing they can do to curry God's favor. You want to offend a non-believer? Tell them there is nothing you can do to get God's favor. That will offend them. And when you tell them that Jesus is the perfect one who came to save rebellious sinners, that makes people angry. When you tell them that they really are bad and that Jesus is the only good one and that only his goodness, his perfect life can make them right with God, that will make them angry because people want something to do. They want a list to check off. People don't want a savior. They want a list they can check off even in the church. Even as Christians, we still have a default tendency to think that we need to do something to sort ourselves out, to to clean up the mess that we have made. And so what Christmas does is it challenges our what-must-we-do assumption. What must I do? I have to do something to fix the mess. Think about the shepherds who came to worship the baby Jesus. They didn't come to worship a to-do list. Think about the wise men that brought all those gifts fit for a king. They did not lay their gifts before a set of instructions. And King Herod did not go on his rampage of killing all male babies under the age of two because he was threatened by a list of do's and don'ts. Why? Because Christmas is about a person. It's about God's son coming down to rescue us from us. It's about how God saves sinners based on what Jesus has already done for us. Michael Reeves says, The virgin birth is an almighty no to all our silly attempts at earning salvation. Here is supernatural intervention. The virgin birth is God screaming no at all of our attempts at earning his favor. And yet somehow we have believed the lie that God's solution to our sin problem was to give us a list of things to do and not to do. Jesus didn't come to instruct us and give us a to-do list. No, he came to be one of us to live with us, to live for us, and to die for us. And now he invites us to trust him, to trust his promises. He came to give us a gift, himself. And that's why Martin Luther said, the chief article and foundation of the gospel is that before you take Christ as an example, you accept and recognize him as a gift, as a present that God has given you and that is your own. Will you accept his gift today? If you do, God won't be mad at you anymore. If you do, God will be pleased with you forever, all because of what Jesus has done. If you do, God will say over you this morning, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or he will say, you are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased, all because of his son. That's good news. That's good news of great joy. So let's close this morning with something that Rod Rosenblatt said. 
Repentance involves putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of I'm getting better until we say all I've got is Christ. Repentance involves putting a wooden stake through the vampire heart of I'm getting better. I'm finally doing it. Look at me. I got this Christianity thing worked out. Repentance involves putting a stake through that vampire heart of I'm getting better until you collapse and crumble and say all I've got is Christ. May you leave here today saying all I've got is Christ and he is enough. Let's pray. Father, we readily admit that we have loved 10 million things more than you. We have treasured so many trivial things, made idols of the most absurd things in the world, and not loved you and worshiped you. And yet on your end, You have loved us and you sent your son to come clean up the mess that we made. And because of him, we are now your sons and daughters. Peace has come to us, to the ones that you're pleased with, and it's all because of Jesus. Father, all we have right now is Christ and he is enough. May your spirit impress the gospel of great joy deeper and deeper into our hearts. May the Spirit rub it into our pores this morning and that we would share that gift with others. All for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.